After Donald Trump's win in the New Hampshire primary, it's hard to see another chance for Nikki Haley to get ahead, but she is vowing to keep fighting. That story is coming up. Also, President Biden walked the picket line with striking automobile workers last year. Today, he got the United Auto Workers endorsement for president. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, nearly 65,000 pregnancies are believed to have been caused by rape that occurs in states where abortion is illegal. The issue of abortion bans and rape coming up. A new book explores the experience of being a millennial woman and how it's changed over time. You know, getting married and having kids may not be something you desire. And you have to ask yourself, is this something that I really want or something that I always thought I'd have? These stories and John Stewart comes back to The Daily Show very part time. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The UAW endorses President Biden. It's great to be home. NPR's Andrea Shu says the United Auto Workers Union formally announced its support today for Biden's re-election campaign which could help the Democrat in key states and among a key demographic. President Biden has called himself the most pro-union president in history. During last fall's Big Three auto strike, he became the first sitting president to visit workers on the picket line. But until today, the UAW had withheld an endorsement, wanting more reassurance that Biden would support union workers in the transition to electric vehicles. Today, UAW President Sean Fain laid it out as a simple choice. This November, we can stand up and elect someone who stands with us and supports our cause, or we can elect someone who will divide us and fight us every step of the way. Fain went on to say this election will determine the fate of the country's working class. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. The Republican race to determine who faces Biden in the general election turns to Nevada and South Carolina. Former President Donald Trump remains the clear frontrunner after his victories in Iowa and yesterday in New Hampshire. His rival in the GOP race, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, is campaigning in her home state tonight. NPR's Stephen Fowler has more. Haley finished about 11 points behind Trump in New Hampshire's Republican primary last night, but has vowed to not give up just yet. The former South Carolina governor is focusing on her home state, which has a February 24th primary, as the next opportunity to try and beat Trump. The Haley campaign is also holding on hope for now to get to March 5th's Super Tuesday contest, where Republican voters in more than a dozen states will make their choices. In the meantime, Haley's holding a campaign event in North Charleston before other rallies planned later this week. Stephen Fowler, NPR News. Republican strategist Sarah Longwell, who helped leader lead GOP voters against Trump in 2020, describes where this election's headed. There's a pretty big narrative that women are what are going to take Trump down or they're the ones who are opposed to Trump. And that is true broadly when you include sort of Democrat and independent women. But when you look more at Republican women, they are on board with Trump. In fact, I've Like I said, I do these focus groups. And one of the things that I heard when I would ask about Nikki Haley is how many women who were Republicans said that they didn't think a woman should be president. Republican strategist Sarah Longwell speaking with NPR. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks ended the day mixed. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 99 points, ending at 37,806. The S&P is up three points. The Nasdaq was up 55 points. You're listening to... 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy is proposing a $58 billion state budget. It would send more money to the MBTA, community colleges, and pre-K programs. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, that's about a 3% increase over last year's spending. Healy is walking a bit of a tightrope in her new budget. State tax revenues have been falling for months and aren't projected to increase much next year. But the governor says Massachusetts can still make investments in public programs by trimming around the edges and finding new sources of funding. The result is a smart and focused budget, delivering continuity in state services, and making transformative impact on the urgent challenges that we face. The proposal includes money for free meals in public schools, reduced fares for low-income T-riders, and universal pre-K in 26 mid-sized cities. The budget now goes to the House for consideration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Part of the governor's budget includes closing the state prison in Concord by the end of June. It's the state's oldest running prison for men. It opened in 1878. MCI Concord currently houses about 400 inmates, or about 58 percent of its capacity. The men will be transferred to other state prisons. State Senator Michael Barrett, who represents Concord, says corrections officers will also be transferred to other facilities and no one will lose their job. The Healy administration is pushing lawmakers to expand veterans' benefits in the state. The so-called HERO Act includes more than a dozen proposals for increased benefits and modernized services. The bill also expands efforts to help veterans less than honorably discharged under outdated discriminatory policies receive benefits. That includes LGBTQ veterans. John Santiago is the state's Veterans Affairs Secretary. We created a commission effectively to work with veterans who feel that they were discriminated against. In this case, if they were lesbian or gay and they got a less honorable discharge, don't ask, don't tell. But we're expanding that to include all protected classes. Santiago says he's hopeful the bill will land on the governor's desk this session. And more people voted in the New Hampshire Republican presidential primary than in any past presidential primary of either party. The latest tally from the Associated Press today is that nearly 318,000 Republicans and independents voted in the primary. That's about 20,000 more than in 2020 Democratic primary, which held the previous record. The final number is expected to be a little bit higher. 35 degrees now in the Boston area. Look for more drizzle and some rain overnight tonight. Windy, relatively warm around daybreak, should be about 43 degrees. And tomorrow should be mainly overcast again, damp again, could rise all the way to 50 degrees. 35 in Boston. The time is 4.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In the United Kingdom, tensions are boiling over and U.S. relations are now steeped in controversy about the proper way to make tea. More on that in a little bit. But today, we start with the race for the Republican presidential nomination. After Donald Trump's win yesterday in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is on shakier ground. Let's turn now to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro to sort through the results. Hi there. Hey there, Juana. So, Domenico, Donald Trump won fairly decisively in New Hampshire by about 11 points over Nikki Haley. But we heard her last night. She's vowing to continue. How realistic are her chances? Well, the clock is really ticking for Haley. But last night, she clearly was not ready to give up the fight. 
New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. Well, and Haley has reason to look toward South Carolina. It's her home state. She was governor there. She's holding a rally there tonight, and she's just gone up on the airwaves with millions of dollars in ads. But I have to say she faces some real challenges because South Carolina looks a lot more like Iowa than New Hampshire in a Republican primary. Okay, go on. Say more. Well, I mean, almost half of New Hampshire Republican primary voters were independents last night. Haley won them pretty handily, about 6 in 10. But Trump won Republicans by 50 points, and he won them by 30 points in Iowa. And when it comes to South Carolina and the states after that on Super Tuesday, there just aren't a lot of examples of places that fit the New Hampshire voter profile. You know, South Carolina, for example, 2016, it was 76 percent Republicans. If Haley lost in, uh, you know, if Haley lost in New Hampshire by double digits, how does she win in a place like South Carolina? Now, even if there is some goodwill left from her being governor, we just haven't seen that show up in the polls yet. Uh, Trump leads by a lot there. And only two states looking ahead to Super Tuesday, Vermont and Massachusetts, had an electorate that was less than 60 percent Republican. That's just not going to be enough to beat Trump. I mean, listening to our coverage last night, it sounded like former President Trump was clearly irritated with Nikki Haley's decision to remain in the race. What do you think his approach is going to look like moving forward? Well, I mean, this is another potential major hurdle and problem for Haley. You know, Trump wants the party to unify around him now. He's been calling for that for the better part of the of the past year. You know, many Republicans are are falling in line, even those who might have been lukewarm toward him. I mean, last night, Texas Senator John Cornyn endorsed Trump after his win. You know, because Haley didn't drop out, Trump called her an imposter. He made cracks about what she was wearing, and he promised this. I don't get too angry. I get even. I don't get too angry. I get even. And we've seen how Trump needles and ridicules opponents. He's already brought up Haley's heritage, made fun of her middle name. And even though she was born in the the country and is qualified to run for president, he's arguing that she shouldn't be because her parents weren't born in the United States. You know, you can only imagine what he's going to pull out from the insult bag of tricks now with Haley promising to stay in. And that's a big consideration for Haley. Will she have the money to beat back those kinds of attacks? And what does she want to put up with over the next month if she wants a future in the Republican Party that right now is a party of one? Right. And it's clear that former President Trump wants to move on. And so does the Biden campaign, which said last night that the general election starts now. Is that where we are? Well, we're certainly right on the precipice of that. You know, a write-in effort for Biden in New Hampshire Hampshire last night easily dispatched of Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota. He'd spent $5 million on a race there that that didn't count. Um, And Biden wasn't on the ballot. You know, Trump won easily and with more than 50 percent in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And I have to say, all of this is pretty ironic considering that both men are unpopular, people continue to say they're both too old to be president, and people are not enthusiastic about a potential Biden-Trump rematch. But voters in their parties in these early primary states are saying that's exactly what they do want. And it's going to be acrimonious. It's going to be ugly, like we saw in 2020. But it's pretty much been the most likely outcome all along. And Paris Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. A warning, this next story deals with sexual assault and abortion. A new paper out today estimates the number of people who have become pregnant from rape in states with abortion bans. It's nearly 65,000. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has more. Dr. Samuel Dickman is an abortion provider in Montana. I have patients routinely who tell me that they're pregnant as a result of rape. 
Dickman began to wonder about patients who became pregnant due to rape in states where abortion is banned. So he and a group of colleagues set about to gauge the scope of that problem. The challenge? There is no data set on the number of rapes that result in pregnancy. We use the best available research and data that we're aware of to come up with the fraction of women of reproductive age who are survivors of, and the terminology here is horrible, but, you know, completed vaginal rape. They put together survey data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with Bureau of Justice Statistics data and FBI crime reports. They calculated there have been more than half a million rapes in states with abortion bans while those bans were in effect, and that those rapes have resulted in 64,565 pregnancies. Dickman said he and his colleagues were shocked at those numbers. I was horrified. Sexual assault is incredibly common, and I knew that in a general sense, but to be confronted with these estimates that are so high in states where there's no meaningful abortion access, I mean, it's hard to comprehend. Dr. Rachel Perry is an OBGYN and professor at the University of California, Irvine, who was not involved in the study. She thinks the methods Dickman and his colleagues used to come up with their estimates were appropriate given the lack of concrete data. Seeing these numbers makes us realize that even if they aren't exact, it is a huge problem. Certainly not all of the people who become pregnant due to rape want an abortion, Perry observes. But we do know that those who become pregnant after rape are more likely to choose abortion than to continue their pregnancies. Which suggests tens of thousands of Americans have wanted an abortion after a rape and had no access where they lived. Polling consistently shows that most Americans think that someone who is raped and becomes pregnant should have legal access to an abortion. Yet the majority of states with abortion bans do not include such an exception. Some rape survivors are starting to speak out about the need for easier access to abortion after assault. Survivors like Samantha Hansen. She was a college student at Brigham Young University in 2014 when she was watching Netflix with someone she considered a friend. She went to go pop popcorn in the other room. When I came back with the popcorn and started sipping my Coke, it wasn't too long before I couldn't move a single muscle. Weeks later, she noticed she'd missed her period and a pregnancy test came back positive. She went to Planned Parenthood to talk through her options. She had decided to continue the pregnancy, but ended up having a miscarriage. Still, she was grateful to have had the option to end her pregnancy. Having had my autonomy stripped from me that night that I was raped, having the ability to make that choice was so, so pivotal to my healing. Hansen says the researcher's estimate of 65,000 pregnancies from rape may surprise some people. I'm not surprised, and if anything, I'm over here going, it's probably higher. She's glad the researchers worked to quantify the number. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Now to the United Kingdom, where a U.S. scientist's book about tea is making quite a splash, or maybe more of a stir, or has it become a tempest in a teacup? From London, NPR's Lauren Freyer reports on what one American wrote about Britain's national drink and how it landed the U.S. embassy in hot water. 
Today was publication day for Michelle Franzel, a chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. She thought her new book, called Steeped, The Chemistry of Tea, would be a modest little chemistry tome with crossover appeal. Thinking about caffeine, thinking about the molecules that give it its beautiful aroma. Except there's this one line. Here's the full book, and I'm going to look to see where I put the salt in. For the perfect cup of tea, she advises warming the milk to reduce chances of curdling when it hits the water, and adding a pinch of salt to make the tea less bitter. Now, to anyone who's ever been in a relationship with a Brit or spent like five minutes in the UK, that sounds like blasphemy. This scientist reckons that the only way to have a decent cup of tea is with a pinch of salt. That's what I said. Lunacy. Oh, be right. Hot milk and salt. Who is this person? Those are local talk radio hosts Vic Minette and Tony McDonald. They had on-air call-ins today from people like Jane Pettigrew, director of the UK Tea Academy, recipient of multiple World Tea Awards, and contributing editor of Tea Time magazine. I just made myself a cup of tea with some salt in it, and I have to say I don't like it much. <laughs> it's- Bizarre. It's very bizarre. It's been 250 years since the last time Americans spoiled a whole lot of British tea with salt water in Boston Harbor. So the U.S. Embassy in London scrambled to issue a statement today, calling tea the elixir of camaraderie, a sacred bond that unites our nations. Here's the embassy public affairs officer, Rodney Ford. We want to assure the good people of the U.K. that the unthinkable notion of adding salt to Britain's national drink is not official United States policy. And never will be. Except, as in Franzel's book, there's this one little line at the end of the statement. The U.S. Embassy will continue to make tea the proper way, it says, by microwaving it. Heads are exploding across these British Isles tonight. And in case you didn't catch this, the U.S. Embassy staff have a sense of humor. It mostly seems all within kind of good fun. People are taking it... I'm going to make a terrible pun again. A grain of salt. <laughs> As for the author Francel at the center of this whole brew, haha. Well, my son lives in London, so now I'm worried am I going to be able to visit him? She's pretty sure she'll still be allowed into this country. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered on WBUR, the experience of being a millennial woman, including friendships, feelings, fangirls, and fitting in. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the exhibition Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, with over 700 Holocaust artifacts. Opens this March in Boston, theauschwitzexhibition.com. And Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. 
A mixed finish on Wall Street today. The Dow was down. It lost a quarter of a percent. S&P had a small gain, less than a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. New England restaurants are well represented in this year's list of James Beard semifinalists. Comfort Kitchen of Dorchester is nominated for Best New Restaurant. Haley Henry in downtown Boston and Rebel Rebel in Somerville both got nods for their wine. Restaurants and chefs from Portland, Providence, and Newport also made the list. The finalists will be announced in April. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops, U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Kind of gloomy out there today. Often on rain should continue through the night tonight. About 43 degrees by daybreak tomorrow, then turning a good deal milder during the day, around 50. Mainly gray skies, though, with a few showers possible. This is WBUR, 35 degrees now at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant. A new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon, Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This week, Israel saw its highest number of soldier deaths in one day since it began its invasion of Gaza. In all, 210 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the war. Nearly a fifth of those deaths were caused by accidents or friendly fire, according to the Israel Defense Forces. That is one of the highest such percentages in recent military history. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports. Israeli soldiers were killed in airstrikes by shrapnel from Israeli explosives. Some were run over by armored vehicles or mistakenly identified and hit by tank fire, shelling and guns. That's according to a report released by the IDF earlier this month. There have been injuries too as Israel fights its most complex war, with two million civilians and tens of thousands of soldiers packed into the tiny coastal enclave of Gaza. As somebody who has fought in a similar environment when I was a brigade commander in Iraq, there's really no limit (laughs) to the procedural steps that you can take to minimize those kind of casualties. And even with that, there are going to be breakdowns and tragic outcomes. That's retired Lieutenant General Sean McFarland, who was also the commander of coalition forces against ISIS. He says one big factor for the high number of friendly fire deaths is that Israel is essentially fighting it out amongst the civilian population, who have not been allowed to leave Gaza. And as Hamas militants jump out of the hundreds of miles of tunnel networks and fire at Israeli soldiers, it's led to a highly kinetic environment that's tested Israel's military structure and the limits of its technological prowess. Urban combat really strips away a lot of the technological advantages that any force holds over any other force. Fighting inside of buildings is uh, very, very difficult. And once again, it kind of comes back to training and less about technology. Israel brought nearly 300,000 reservists back to active duty. Many went from their regular day jobs to urban combat in Gaza with limited training. 
These incidents, along with the shooting of three hostages by Israeli soldiers and the more than 25,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza, have raised questions about how Israel is conducting its war tactically and strategically. And there's more to it than just the environment of urban warfare or lack of training, according to Raphael Cohen, who's a senior political scientist with the RAND Corporation. It also has to do with the unique structure of the Israeli armed forces. They're all very young. Israel tends to promote quickly. Um, And, you know, Israeli military culture tends to be very sort of short-term and tactical. It means the priority is generally on military force. Israel still has no day-after plan in Gaza, something that has worried U.S. officials that Israel could be headed towards strategic defeat. Cohen says beyond that, there's also a lack of shorter-term tactical strategy, such as helping to pass out aid and food to civilians, even toys to children. Cohen says these are things that are usually baked into every U.S. military officer. What can I do to sort of mitigate the harm to the population, both for moral grounds, but for strategic grounds as well, because hopefully that you know kid that you gave the soccer ball to you know, they probably will still hate you, but maybe they'll hate you a little bit less is what you're aiming for. And that's that's just that's just not there. Avner Govaryahu is the director of Breaking the Silence, an organization of veterans that oppose the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. He says Israel's leaders need to learn the lessons here. Nearly three months since the invasion of Gaza, only one hostage was returned by the military. The others were all brought back through a deal. I think that it does expose some of the weakness in this idea that we can just use force to solve our problems. More and more Israelis are now beginning to ask that question, too. Fatma Tanis, NPR News. Comedian Jon Stewart helped turn The Daily Show into a program that redefined satire about politics and media. Nearly nine years after he left the job, Stewart is returning as an executive producer and part-time host. The show has spent more than a year trying to find a successor to Trevor Noah, the comic who succeeded Stewart. Noah left The Daily Show in 2022. Here to discuss all of this is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hello. Hi. So, Eric... I mean, what do you make of this news? Why would Stewart choose to rejoin a show that he essentially retired from back in 2015? Well, I think this is a chance to really reinvigorate the show and instantly make it more relevant while they kick the can down the road a little bit in terms of actually choosing a permanent replacement host. So Stewart is is set to return to hosting The Daily Show on Monday nights beginning February 12th, all the way through the 2024 election cycle. And the show's correspondence will handle Tuesdays through Thursdays. And Stewart, along with his manager, James Dixon, they're going to serve as executive producers for all the show's episodes, possibly through 2025. And this allows Stewart to help chart the future of the show in the same way that he chose Trevor Noah. And as far as why he's doing it now, I think the show's executive producer, Jen Flans, she told me last year that Stewart um, uh, uh, reached out when Noah announced his departure from the show and asked how he could help. Eventually, he agreed to drop in as a guest during former correspondent Roy Wood Jr.'s guest hosting stint. So he seems to still care about the future of the show. And now he's going to be actively involved in helping it succeed. Very interesting. So, Eric, what do you think this all says about the show's efforts to find a new host to follow Trevor Noah? Well, I think it shows how hard it's been for Comedy Central to find a new host. I mean, the show had this succession of guest hosts since January of last year. 
but they also had some people kind of repeat those roles. Leslie Jones and Sarah Silverman did it twice, indicating that they might have had a, a tough time finding comics to even serve as guest hosts. So there were rumors that former correspondent Hassan Minhaj might be chosen to take over the show, but controversies over his past stand-up specials seemed to quash that idea. And in John Stewart's case, you know, this past fall, he left this deal with Apple to do a show called The Problem with John Stewart over conflicts about content. So now he's free. He can return to this place where he had his greatest success during a presidential election. We're all going to be laser focused on politics and media. Okay. And it's a moment when fans of the show, old school fans of the show, might post on social media that they wish he was hosting The Daily Show anyway. Right. I mean, we've talked before about how the late night genre is contracting. So I'm curious if this development might offer a glimmer of hope for people who have seen folks like Trevor Noah that we've been talking about and James Corden leave late night shows and wonder what's next. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wonder if this arrangement isn't also a little bit of an admission that, at least for now, the way the show focused on younger viewers when they hired Trevor Noah might have gotten the program in a bit of a jam because younger people are not watching old-fashioned linear television like cable TV channels. Now, during his 16 years hosting The Daily Show, Jon Stewart was widely admired for upgrading it from a more kind of run-of-the-mill comedy program to creating this style of political and news satire that we see all over late night TV now, including from people who used to work at The Daily Show like Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, and John Oliver. So it seems like he's getting back in the driver's seat to try shape the Daily Show's next chapter, whatever that means, and watching him achieve it, I think it's going to be fascinating. And who knows? You know, he might decide he likes it enough to stay in the chair himself. Who knows? Indeed. That is NPR TV critic Eric Daggins. Eric, thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, President Biden gets the coveted endorsement of the United Auto Workers. And later, there's a rare moment of joy among Palestinians as they celebrate their national soccer team's win at the competition that sends them to the knockout stage. In the forecast today, often on rain, making for a rather gloomy day overnight tonight, should stay uh, cloudy with some rain off and on. Temperatures about 43 degrees by daybreak tomorrow. Then tomorrow could make it to 50 degrees, mainly gray skies, a few showers possible during the day. 35 degrees now in Boston at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or donfoot.com Beauty on Time. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. <laughs> I'm Robin Young. Some states are jailing parents, usually single moms juggling doctor appointments and transportation, whose kids miss too much school. The parents and the kids often are trying the best they can in the circumstances of their lives. Punishing them for that won't get them to school more. It'll just punish them for something that if they had any choice, they wouldn't be doing. The solutions for truancy next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is vowing to stay in the race, appearing tonight in her home state of South Carolina, where she once served as governor. 
Haley is pledging not to give up after losing in New Hampshire last night as well as Iowa last week. From South Carolina Public Radio, Victoria Hansen reports. Haley is holding a rally in North Charleston on the same night the state's governor and Trump supporter Henry McMaster is giving his annual State of the State address. McMaster was by former President Donald Trump's side in New Hampshire, as was Haley's former election rival and South Carolina Congressman Tim Scott. The question is, who will stand by Haley tonight? The state's first in the South primaries next month are open, meaning Democrats can choose to vote for a Republican instead. Haley's campaign is hoping voters frustrated with presumed nominee Joe Biden will cross over. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Charleston. Ukraine says it's investigating claims by Russia that it targeted a Russian military plane that crashed today, killing all 74 people on board, including 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war who were about to be sent home. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says they're still gathering intelligence on the situation. We've seen the reports, but we're not in a position to confirm them. Uh, we're obviously doing the best we can to try to get more clarity and more information on it. Moscow claims Ukrainian missiles hit the plane that fell in a snowy and rural area in Russia today. Both countries have traded conflicting accusations throughout the 700-day war. Russia says the plane was carrying 65 POWs, a crew of six, and three Russian service members. On Wall Street, stocks finished mixed today after eBay announced it's cutting about 1,000 jobs. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey is out with her budget for the fiscal year that starts July 1st. The $58 billion plan is about a 3% increase over the current budget. It does not include plans for any tax increases. Doug Howgate of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation says Healey seems to have taken a relatively conservative approach given the uncertainty of the economy. That's why it's critical to not see a budget that takes money from the stabilization fund or does some of those things that's really going to limit our choices. So absolutely, the economy seems stronger than our revenue collections. Who knows what the future looks like? So we need to make sure we're protecting against that now. The budget includes $325 million to help the large number of unhoused migrants coming into the state. It also includes some cost-saving measures, including the closure of the state prison in Concord. A new report suggests that changes Massachusetts made to its criminal justice laws has cut down on the number of people in its prisons. The report from Mass Inc. and Research Center Boston Indicators finds that the number of incarcerated people fell by half over the past decade. That number dropped the fastest after 2018. That's when the state implemented changes that included decriminalizing uh, minor offenses, expanding diversion programs for juveniles, and reducing jail time for some drug crimes. The state's largest health insurer is putting the brakes on a controversial policy to restrict the use of anesthesia during colonoscopies. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts drew outrage from doctors who said the new policy could discourage patients from getting exams. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. The dispute involved the level of sedation that patients receive during colonoscopies and other similar procedures. Doctors and patients often prefer anesthesia, also known as deep sedation, which puts patients to sleep. Blue Cross leaders argued that many patients don't need anesthesia and could be examined while sedated but still awake. The insurer said it would only pay for anesthesia if patients met certain criteria. But now, after a backlash from doctors, the insurance company is pausing enforcement of the new policy. Blue Cross leaders say there's too much confusion about the plan and vow to give 90 days notice before making any other changes. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. 35 degrees in Boston. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And the Lyric Stage with Trouble in Mind, Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway. LyricStage.com. Some foggy spots this afternoon and evening, then a rainy night ahead. Tomorrow should start up in the 40s and could reach 50 by the afternoon, another overcast day, with off and on showers. 35 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Millennials have experienced an interesting evolution of stereotypes. Starting out in a place that was lazy, entitled, basement dwelling, and then the mid to late 2010s trend of saying we killed major industries and economic sectors like paper napkins or low-fat yogurt. And then to the 2020s where we kind of have been mocked by Gen Z for like side parts and skinny jeans. That's Kate Kennedy. She's out with a new book called One and a Millennial on friendships, feelings, fangirls, and fitting in. Kennedy explores the experience of being a millennial woman, complete with references to AOL Instant Messenger, Going Out Tops, and the Spice Girls. But she also explores why we millennials get such a bad rep and where those stereotypes come from. She says we are a misunderstood generation. When I got into the workplace in the early 2010s and people were saying millennials were lazy and entitled, I would notice things like, you know, seeking more work-life balance, being labeled as lazy or, you know, calling us job hoppers. But when you graduate in the most severe you know, economic recession since the Great Depression and you've never had a company be loyal to you, of course you're going to look out for your best interests. As a fellow millennial, I found Kennedy's memoir deeply relatable, even though our life experiences were completely different. I wanted to kind of revisit the pop culture and zeitgeisty elements that make us a product of our time and wanted to detail the way we engage with that media and pop culture in real time and kind of reclaim the experiences of our girlhood that were easily written off as frivolous and unimportant. Shared experiences of girlhood written off as frivolous. One example Kennedy gives, the iconic 2000s college getting ready ritual known as the pregame. It was an interesting time where, you know, for me in college, we would have these all-girl get-togethers that were, to me, electric. There, there were safe spaces where people would build you up and tell you how hot you looked, and we'd take pictures with our point-and-shoots dangling from our wrists that almost beautifully we couldn't post in real time, so we had to be present. And there was a lot of support found within those environments when we were getting ready, when we were building each other up. And, you know, we jokingly would put up away messages that said things like live for the nights you'll never remember with the friends you'll never forget. And the joke is, I forgot all the parties. The pregames to me are the main event far more than the event we were pregaming for. 
When I was reading the part of your book where you talked about this particular fixture of our millennial life, it immediately made me think back to my days in a sorority at a big state school where I was trying really hard to fit in and not having the greatest time. And I just remember the women that I surrounded myself with being literally life-saving in some cases. And I mean, can you talk a little bit about this particular era of female friendships and what they mean and meant to you? It's interesting when you're in a situation where people tell you that you're going to have the time of your life, but you don't feel like you are. But you can have good times when you're not having the time of your life. And for me, college was really challenging. I found it destabilizing and I felt a little bit lost without the friends and places that made me who I was. And um, I think joining a sorority is an interesting thing where Greek life has its many issues that it, it should have evolved from, but it also provides you a sense of security and makes a big school much smaller. And while I now look back and laugh at, you know, the late nights during recruitment or how many $12 t-shirts I was forced to pay for, I also acknowledge that without having those close relationships, I'm not sure how I would have gotten by. We were all finding ourselves and supporting each other the best way we could. And the thing you don't know about life is that as you get older, you don't have hours and hours to kill to just watch TV together. You don't get to wake up with all your friends and laugh about the previous night's events. And as your first glimpse of adulthood, you're almost misled to think you'll always get to live and exist with your friends. When you get older and everyone's lives divert, it's it's really never the same. And I think part of my fondness for that period of time is the longing for when we got to spend all of our time together supporting one another. Mm. There is a thing that you point out over and over again in this book, and it's this idea of self-editing that we've been conditioned to do, particularly girls and young women. This idea that We downsize our feelings about the things that we love, particularly when we're talking about traditionally feminine and pop culture related interests, because we want to feel accepted and legitimate. And I have to say, as I was reading your book, it struck me that this is something that I still do today to some degree because I want to be seen as respected. Where do you think all of that comes from? You know, I think that it's it has even deeper origins when you think about you know, women's interests being labeled as guilty pleasures or romance novels being trashy novels. Uh, In the book, I say, you know, why did I let people who draft make-believe football teams make me believe my interests weren't important? It's not that sports aren't, it's that they're both valid forms of leisure. But feminine coded interests typically get a harsher edit. And even dating back to the 50s when, you know, soap operas were getting the most viewership in they were showcasing the economic viability of female audiences. They were the only shows that weren't even reported and reviewed in newspapers because they weren't considered sophisticated enough. And I think that kind of represents the you know, paradox of how much economic viability there is in feminine related interests, yet how oftentimes they aren't considered sophisticated or important by society. And it's just this interesting experience where in every single context, I found myself self-editing, whether it was when I was dating when I was younger or got to the workplace and we were doing icebreakers and they asked our favorite movie and I said, how to lose a guy in 10 days. And then I quickly realized, oh, I should have I should have said Citizen Kane. They're going to use this isolated pop culture reference to project onto my whole personality that I lack depth. 
I want to end this conversation on a topic that you get into late in the book, and that's millennial motherhood. And you teased out something that I don't think we talk about enough, and that's how we, and by we I mean women in our 20s and 30s, are raised and talked to as though the path is really linear. You grow up, you go to college, you meet a partner who's normally a man in this telling, and get married, and then you have kids, and it is all presented as inevitable. But that's not always the case, and the feelings that come along with all of that are so intense and complicated. They really are. In the book, I talk about the playground song, you know, the love, marriage, baby carriage of it all, and how that is kind of the oversimplified way we look to our futures. And then when there are inevitable complexities with dating and finding a partner and the process of deciding if you want kids and the lack of control you have over if you were even able to have them, among other things, I think it becomes really clear when you get older that these things are not guaranteed. They're a product of both our choices and our chances. And, you know, getting married and having kids may not be something you one desire. And you have to ask yourself, you know, is this something that I really want or something that I always thought I'd have? And two, um, they're not always within our control. And I find that a lot of women beat themselves up about you know, their relationship status or the difficulty of getting pregnant or experiencing loss as if they did something wrong. But I really think so often the tension we're feeling is a departure from our expectations. That's Kate Kennedy, host of the podcast Be There in Five. Her memoir, One in a Millennial, is out now. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And thank you for reading the book and for sharing it with people. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. President Biden got a potentially big endorsement in the 2024 presidential contest today from the United Auto Workers Union. And that organization has nearly 400,000 members, many of them in such important political battlegrounds as Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The UAW had been a holdout in granting its endorsement. Other major labor organizations like the AFL-CIO made announcements that they were backing Biden last summer. But now the UAW is officially on board with President Biden and NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne is covering this from Detroit. Hey, Don. Hi there. This announcement comes after a long and successful UAW strike against against Detroit's big car makers. Tell us how the union came around to Biden after insisting for so long that it was going to take its time and uh, that such an endorsement had to really be earned? The question was never whether the union might endorse Trump. Fain has, Sean Fain, the union president, has said repeatedly over the months that a second Trump term would be a disaster. But today he really, really drove that home using the strongest of language to reject Trump. Donald Trump is a scab. Donald Trump is a billionaire, and that's who he represents. 
And Ari, just to underscore that use of the term scab, it is as low of an insult as you can get from a union leader. It's a term for a person who crosses the picket line during a mm -hmm. strike. So that was the tone. Uh, Fain made multiple comparisons between uh, Biden and Trump in a 30-minute speech. He noted that Biden has stood by unions over the decades, that Trump has done the opposite, that Biden showed up and joined their picket lines during the strike last fall, the first sitting president ever to join a picket line, while Trump came to Metro Detroit as well, but he gave a speech at a non-union auto parts factory, and so it went. Biden also spoke. Clearly, he's pleased to get this endorsement. What was his message? Uh, can I say first, Fain set a tone. Uh, this was a raucous event. I've seen lots of endorsements over the years. This one had way more energy than they typically do. Biden came out and immediately put on a UAW ball cap. At Trump events, we see the MAGA hats. Biden conspicuously put on the UAW cap. He was clearly grateful. He's been waiting for this endorsement. And he said, as he has said so many times, that joining a union is a right and that unions built the middle class and made the companies they work for better. You built these iconic companies. You built GM. You built, you built these companies. You sacrificed to save them in the worst of times. And you deserve to benefit when these companies thrive. As Sean said, record profits mean record contracts. So, Don, why is this endorsement potentially so significant? Uh, first, it doesn't automatically or magically deliver the union vote to Biden. Union voters are divided, but they do tend to support Democrats, maybe by something like 58 to 40. Trump does better than other Republicans with that vote, but even he doesn't carry the union vote. The question is, does UAW President Sean Fain have some extra pull with his members now that he's led them through a very successful strike, and will that pay off in... Uh, uh, unusual and out-of-the-ordinary ways for Biden. It's NPR's Don Gagne reporting from Detroit. Thanks, Don. It's my pleasure. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next hour on WBUR, reporter Anthony Brooks wraps up last night's primary in New Hampshire and looks ahead to the future of the first in the nation primary event. Listen at 544 on the radio and on the WBUR app. Also coming up to City Space, join Here and Now's Robin Young Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason about his hit novel, North Woods. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Not too chilly out there today, still 35 degrees. Tonight, more rain, windy, relatively warm around daybreak tomorrow, 43 degrees. Should rise all the way to about 50 during the day. Another cloudy and damp day. This is 90.9 WBUR, 35 degrees in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 60 years, with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com As the 2024 election gathers momentum, voters under 30 are the ones to watch. I'm trying to pay my loans off, but it's insurmountable. Lowering the taxes, reducing the regulations, 
doing a lot more manufacturing in America. Ensuring that there's a planet to leave behind. Hear what's on their minds as they head to the polls and how the candidates stack up. That's on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Scott Detrow. Former President Donald Trump appears to be on a clear path to the Republican nomination, almost guaranteeing a rematch of 2020 and almost guaranteeing that in November, voters will be faced with the question of whether or not to put someone looking at 91 criminal counts back in the White House. Thirteen of those are coming out of the key swing state of Georgia, where Trump pressured election officials to overturn the results. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis brought criminal charges against Trump and others for those alleged efforts. But now Willis is facing scrutiny herself. The judge in the case has set a hearing to look into allegations raised by one of Trump's co-defendants, that Willis is in a personal relationship with the outside counsel she appointed to lead the case against Trump. Trump is using those allegations to try and discredit the case. And it is important to say that there's still no concrete evidence of an affair and also that Willis has not formally denied them. To talk more about all of this, we are joined by Norman Eisen, a lawyer and ethics expert who previously advised the House Judiciary Committee during the first Trump impeachment. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Scott. So you are now calling for Nathan Wade, the outside prosecutor in the case, to step aside. Why is that? There's no legal requirement that Mr. Wade or Ms. Willis step aside based on the allegations that the two of them are having a relationship. Georgia law, like law all over the United States, is very clear that those kinds of ancillary matters do not go to the merits of the case. Scott, we've all heard the tape. You just played it. There's powerful evidence here. Mm-hmm. And they're having a relationship it has nothing to do with the strength of the case against the former president or with any other prejudice to a defendant. It doesn't harm the defendants. So it's no basis legally for disqualification. And yet it has become a distraction. Instead of thinking about that evidence, I just want to find 11,780 votes that didn't exist and that the former president knew didn't exist. Very serious alleged crimes. We've all become consumed with this relationship. So I think Mr. Wade has done a great job leading the team up until now. He's had a string of successes and a suitable capstone to keep the case moving forward would be for him to say, discretion is the better part of valor. I don't have to, but I'm going to step aside so we can return the focus where it should be on the alleged criminality. You said this was an ancillary matter. And again, these are allegations that clear-cut evidence has not been presented yet. Is it ancillary to allegedly steer something like more than $600,000 of taxpayer money to someone you're in a relationship with, even if they're doing work to earn that money? I am not saying that we shouldn't look at it as an ethics matter, as a personnel matter, as a matter of public interest, but it's ancillary to the rules that govern whether Mr. Wade or Ms. Willis stay on this case. I'm not saying that they don't merit a look, they do, but 
they don't disqualify the prosecutors here and they should not slow down this case, which is of paramount public importance. What can the DA's office do to course correct here other than, you know, in your suggestion, Wade stepping aside? Is there anything else to do to kind of reset and say this is a serious charge? And as you said, we've already gotten convictions and we are moving forward. Number one, there needs to be some recognition of accountability, which is why I think Wade stepping aside is far preferable to the DA doing so. She was democratically elected. Um, She owes it to her constituents to see this through. The DA stepping aside would be very disruptive. So that's step number one. Step number two, total transparency. I think when the DA files her motion on February 2nd, she should put it all out there. That's uh, kind of uh, the number one rule of uh, crisis management is get all the facts, get them all out at once. And then number three, the judge has to have an evidentiary hearing and double down on the transparency by having scrutiny, kind of belt and suspenders, where he asks the hard questions, he hears from witnesses, he gets documents, and then he rules in a way that lifts the cloud. I think together with a gesture of accountability like Wade stepping away, that really can put us in a situation in mid-February where it's been thoroughly ventilated. There's no more news. And we return to really what is the important issue here, like in the other three criminal cases, over 90 felony charges against the former president. Some of the most serious alleged criminal wrongdoing assaulting our democracy that we've seen in the history of our country. That's Norman Eisen, a lawyer and ethics expert. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. The Palestinian soccer team made history this week. For the first time ever, it secured a spot in the knockout stage of the AFC Asian Cup. And as NPR's Hadil Al-Shalchi reports, it was a rare moment of happiness. It's never been easy for the Palestinian soccer team, says forward Tamar Siam. Preparing for the cup was very difficult, he says. We faced a lot of challenges to get together to train. No one was sure how the team would do. But then... The ball whipped in and it's met by De for the opener in the 12th minute. They beat Hong Kong 3-0, sending them to the knockout stage. There were tears of joy on the soccer field. The stadium erupted with elation, chanting Palestine, Palestine, and waving Palestinian flags and kafiyas. The win is a bright spot during a difficult time as the Israel-Hamas war rages in Gaza. The death toll there has topped 25,000 people, according to health officials. Walid Abdullah watched the game with his son at a cafe in the West Bank city of Ramallah. He said he was overjoyed at the win. The Palestinian people need hope, he said. Something to be happy about, to feel like they're alive. Coffee shops in Ramallah were packed yesterday with people watching the match. And the atmosphere was festive for the first time since the war began. Hamad Aweda from Jerusalem watched with his friends and said it was an incredible accomplishment. I've had no appetite for doing anything, Aweda said, but it's our national team, so I have to support them. 
The next match is on Sunday, and Palestinians are hoping to experience another small moment of joy. Hadil Al-Shalchi, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours. SmartMouth mouthwash, toothpaste, and more can be found nationwide at stores or at SmartMouth.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is WBUR. Light rain into the nighttime. Some steadier showers overnight tonight. Should be a breezy and mild night. Tomorrow still damp, often on showers. Unseasonably warm tomorrow with highs hovering right around 50 degrees. 37 degrees in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An increasing number of Israelis are voicing concerns about their Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's handling of the war in Gaza. The only thing he cares about is his own self and not the Israeli people. The calls for Netanyahu to step down and what he says in response coming up on this Wednesday, January 24th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, journalist Barton Gelman has covered national security issues for years and the 2024 election has him worried. I've been writing about what seems to be an existential threat to democracy and the rule of law. This is not a drill. It's the real thing. Coming up, why Gelman says protecting our democratic institutions must be a priority. Also, the New Hampshire primary, is it the hallmark of the place of retail politics still? And does the primary still carry as much clout as it has in years past? These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The United Auto Workers Union is officially endorsing President Biden's re-election campaign. Our endorsements must be earned. Joe Biden has earned it. UAW President Sean Fain condemned Republican frontrunner Donald Trump as a scab who, quote, stands against everything we stand for as a union, as a society. Biden often says he is the most pro-union president in history. Wall Street didn't build America. The middle class built America. And unions built the middle class. Other major unions were quick to endorse Biden's campaign last year. 
The Georgia Republican Party is calling on South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to step aside so the party can coalesce behind former President Donald Trump. That's after Haley pledged to press on to the South Carolina primary despite Trump's win in New Hampshire this week. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass has more. Georgia GOP Chair Josh McCoon and the two other Republican National Committee members from Georgia write that, quote, Republicans have sent a clear message. They want to see the GOP united around our eventual nominee, Donald Trump. But Republicans here have not always unified. Republican Governor Brian Kemp broke with Trump and the state party organization after Kemp refused to back their false election fraud claims in 2020. A top Kemp advisor, Cody Hall, fired back, saying the state party's role is to, quote, support our nominees, not try to decide them. Kemp, who hasn't endorsed yet ahead of Georgia's March 12th primary, says he'll vote for Trump if he's the nominee. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. China's central bank is taking steps to ease bank lending. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on what that might mean for the world's second biggest economy. The People's Bank of China says it's cutting the amount of cash reserves banks are required to hold. The surprise move is designed to encourage more bank lending in China amid disappointing economic growth. Stocks closed up overnight in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Netflix stock opened up after the streaming service announced another big jump in its subscriber base. Netflix has been offering cheaper ad-supported plans and cracking down on password sharing. Last year, the company added nearly 30 million new subscribers worldwide. Unions are having less success signing up new members. Despite winning some big pay gains, the ranks of union members rose only slightly in 2023, and the share of all workers who belong to a union dipped to just 10 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was down 99 points. It's down about two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq up 55 points. That's up about three-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Good afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has released her $56 billion budget for the fiscal year that starts in July. The plan out today increases spending by more than $2 billion, or 3.7 percent over this year. She calls it balanced, responsible, and forward-looking. Healey says it will strengthen the state's fiscal health while responding to residents' needs. For housing and child care that's affordable, for schools that help every child reach their potential, and for transportation that is safe and reliable. The budget does not include any new taxes and does not propose tapping into the state's rainy day fund. It still needs approval from the state legislature. We're waiting to find out if classes will be canceled again tomorrow in Newton Public Schools. Teachers there have been on strike since Friday. Congresswoman Anna Presley joined the Newton Education Association rally this afternoon to show support for teachers. We can't say that public education is a public good and operate from a scarcity mindset and continue to under-resource and divest from our schools. Newton city leaders say they're working hard to find a resolution. They're asking the union to resume work while negotiations continue. Teacher strikes are illegal under state law. Suffolk County is launching what it says is the first in the nation animal cruelty task force. Suffolk DA Kevin Hayden says the multi-agency group will work to reduce animal cruelty and bring animal abusers to justice. Anyone who's ever owned and loved a pet knows of the joy and happiness that they can bring and all they ask or really need in return is shelter, food and proper care. 
sadly, we're seeing more and more animals and pets getting hurt through malicious intent or conscious neglect. State trial court data show a 70% increase in animal abuse cases between 2019 and 2022. In the forecast, 37 degrees, now more rain overnight tonight. Windy, relatively warm, 43 degrees by daybreak, then rising all the way to about 50 tomorrow, but should be another overcast and damp day. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has spent his career defying political gravity. Since October 7th, he's faced his biggest challenge yet. The Hamas attack killed 1,200 people. Hamas took more than 200 hostages. And in the first weeks of the war, Netanyahu was asked at a press conference whether he should step down. The only thing that I intend to have resign is Hamas. We're going to resign them to the dustbin of history. Netanyahu has said he'll face questions about responsibility when the war is over. But there are signs that reckoning is already approaching. NPR's Daniel Estrin has covered Netanyahu for many years, and he's in Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Ari. What are the recent signs that you're seeing to indicate that Netanyahu may be in trouble? You know, for the first months of this war, Israelis really did put politics aside. They rallied around the troops. Um, You know, this is a national emergency that Israelis have never experienced before in their entire history. But the tone really has changed in the last few weeks, and there have been public protests calling for Netanyahu to step down. I attended one of those protests last weekend. And Israelis were packed in a Tel Aviv square. They were shouting for the resignation of Netanyahu's government. Resignation now is what they shouted. And I met a psychologist in the crowd who's been treating survivors of the Hamas attack. She's Sharon Shitrit. And she said many Israelis feel that the attack was like a holocaust. In a way, it's uh, it's harder than the, the, the holocaust because Israel is supposed to be the place that will protect us from a second holocaust. And we had a second holocaust in Israel. I thought that maybe this holocaust will shock the government that we have, but uh, we realize that nothing is changed. The feeling is that this Holocaust didn't do nothing to them. Now she expected Netanyahu to take responsibility for the colossal security failure that led to the Hamas attack, but Netanyahu has said that now is not the time for him to face questions of responsibility, that that has to come only after the war. I met another Israeli protesting in the crowd. He had been evacuated from his home after the October 7th attacks, Guy Becker. And he doesn't trust Netanyahu to wage this war with the the country's interests in mind. If he knows that uh, everything will be investigated when the war is over, does he really have an incentive to finish the war? And he also questioned Netanyahu's military strategy in Gaza and whether it's truly possible to eliminate Hamas. There aren't real real plans for what they're looking to achieve. What you plan to to do with this uh, place after you you finish uh, achieving those those goals. And they haven't done uh, 
any of that. So those are just some of the voices that we're hearing rising now in the Israeli public. You know, Netanyahu refusing to hold discussions about the day after the war, who rules Gaza. A lot of questioning about Netanyahu's handling of this war. Uh, you know, the thing that is going for Netanyahu, uh, though, is that there is overwhelming support in the country for the war, that the war is justified against Hamas. One complicating factor for Netanyahu is that there are still more than 100 Israelis being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. They've been there for close to four months now. And those hostages' families are a vocal force in Israel. How is Netanyahu dealing with them? Yeah, I mean, Netanyahu really faces a dilemma here. He has been arguing that the military pressure and the intense combat in Gaza is what is needed to lead to the hostages' release. But this has been a very hard argument to make because several of the hostages have been killed accidentally by Israeli soldiers um, and others killed under circumstances potentially resulting from Israeli bombing. And so the families of these hostages have been ramping up their pressure and calling for Israel to make a strike a deal with Hamas to get their loved ones out of Gaza. Um, they've been camping outside Netanyahu Netanyahu's residences. Netanyahu the other day said that he rejected Hamas's terms for a deal, and that angered many relatives of the hostages, and, and they stormed the parliament. They burst into a committee hearing, and they yelled, Netanyahu says there won't be a deal. That is on our backs. What would you do if your child was in Gaza? So Netanyahu really is in a bind here, uh, you know. He's under a pressure to strike a deal with Hamas to release the captives. But if you if you strike a deal with Hamas, then you empower Hamas instead of destroying it, which Netanyahu says he is vowing to do. On top of that, you have the large soldier death toll uh, only rising in Gaza. So Netanyahu just faces no good solutions here. That just increases the pressure he's under. Let's talk about another pressure point here, which is the Biden administration. It looks like the rift between President Biden and Netanyahu has been growing as the Gaza war drags out. What role is U.S. pressure playing right now? You know, the Biden administration's message to Netanyahu has been, we do want you to defeat Hamas, but the death toll in Gaza is rising. It's above 25,000 people. Biden has been pushing Netanyahu on the need to protect civilians and also on the need to, to plan for Gaza's future. Um, the U.S. wants Gaza to be ruled eventually by the Palestinian Authority, the internationally recognized uh, Palestinian leadership, and eventually that there should be an independent Palestinian state. And if that happens, then Saudi Arabia will pour money into Gaza, other Gulf countries too, and that this whole disaster of the war in Gaza could lead to a better future for Israel. But Netanyahu, as he has for many years, is saying there will not be a Palestinian state, uh, standing up to Biden on that. Netanyahu is worried that if he embraces Palestinian rights, he will lose the support of his ultra-right political base, which uh, he depends on for his political survival. We began this conversation talking about demonstrations calling for new leadership, new elections in Israel. Any sign that new elections might actually happen? Do they seem likely? They seem very likely. Uh, there is a recent poll out that found that a large majority of Israelis, including more than a third of Netanyahu's own voters, want early elections. And the polls show that Netanyahu would lose uh, if there were an election by a large margin to, to his main centrist rival, uh, Benny Gantz. So things are not looking good for Netanyahu. He still faces a corruption trial. There is this public anger brewing in Israel over the war in the sense that it's dragging on with, with few good results. Uh, but 
Netanyahu has proven to be a master political survivor. He's been in power mostly for the last decade and a half. And if a war continues, that can help him hang on. And there is potential of, a, of an even new war uh, on Israel's northern border with Lebanon. So Israel could find itself at war for, for a long time to come and with Netanyahu still at the helm. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. to a notable Hollywood snub. Two women responsible for the highest grossing movie of 2023, Barbie, were overlooked for Best Actress and Best Director when Academy Award nominees were named yesterday. NPR's Netta Ulibi has more. Part of what irritated fans was that Barbie's eight nominations included one for the guy who played Ken. I'm just Ken. Some people complained on social media, it's just like the Barbie movie plot. Ken gets a Best Supporting Actor nomination, Barbie herself gets nada. But let's be clear about a few things. First, Ryan Gosling was really good as Ken. The movie Barbie was also nominated for this song, and for Best Supporting Actress for America Ferreira, and for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. That counts as nominations for Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie, says NPR's pop culture correspondent Linda Holmes. I would have loved to see Gerwig and Robbie nominated for directing and performance, but I'm glad they got other nominations. Gerwig, the director, was nominated for co-writing Barbie's screenplay. This night is just perfect. It's perfectly perfect. And you look so beautiful, Barbie. People tend to talk about the screenplay nomination Gerwig earned with Noah Baumbach as though it's inferior to a directing nomination. I'm not sure it is, really. And star Margot Robbie was nominated as a producer when the film got a Best Picture nomination. Given what I've heard about the fact that her producing contributions were were quite active, that's a real nomination, too. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. It's been widely reported that it was Robbie who convinced Mattel to take this Barbie risk. But movies about toys tend not to get Oscar nominations. Linda Holmes says Barbie was still a unique historic achievement. It's complicated because people think of movies as director's projects. So it's sort of how can you be nominated for Best Picture and not Best Director? But with the math being the way it is now, if you have 10 Best Picture nominees, you're going to have a bunch of directors not nominated. Only five directors get nominated, but it's 10 movies for Best Picture. So, Holmes says, Greta Gerwig got left out, but so did the deserving directors of American fiction, the holdovers, even Maestro. And honestly, the Academy was never not going to nominate Christopher Nolan or Martin Scorsese. If Gerwig had been nominated, it probably would have been Justine Trier from Anatomy of a Fall, who wasn't. And that would have been a shame, too, because that's an excellent piece of directing also. The French courtroom drama Anatomy of a Fall was directed by a woman who won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Vous admettez qu'il était jaloux. No, I don't know. No, no. At least there seems to be room for another woman director. But Barbie fans will be the first to say that's still just not enough. Okay, cool. Netta Ulibi, NPR News.
What started as fighting between Hamas and Israel in October of last year has expanded to include factions from across the Middle East, including the Houthis in Yemen and Iranian-backed militia groups in Iraq. Now Iraq's prime minister is under pressure to expel the 2,500 remaining U.S. troops in his country. We'll talk about what their continued presence has meant, the dangers they're facing, and what their exit could mean tomorrow on All Things Considered. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, labor unions added 139,000 members last year, primarily young people. Still, the share of U.S. workers who belong to a union is at an all-time low. That story and much more is still to come. A mixed finish on Wall Street. The Dow was down. It lost about a quarter of a percent today. S&P had a small gain, less than a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. A Burlington-based 3D printing company is cutting about 200 jobs. Desktop Metal says it plans to cut 20 percent of its global workforce. It says the cuts will save about $50 million as it tries to return to profitability. Desktop Metal laid off about 180 employees last year. And the Healy administration is pushing lawmakers to expand veterans' benefits in the state. The so-called HERO Act includes more than a dozen proposals for increased benefits and modernized services. The bill also expands efforts to help veterans less than honorably discharged under outdated discriminatory policies receive benefits. That includes LGBTQ veterans. John Santiago is the state's Veteran Affairs Secretary. We created a commission effectively to work with veterans who feel that they were discriminated against. In this case, if they were lesbian or gay and they get a less honorable discharge, don't ask, don't tell. But we're expanding that to include all protected classes. Santiago says he's hopeful the bill will land on the governor's desk this session. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Kind of a dreary day today, some foggy spots this evening, then a rainy night ahead. Tomorrow should start up in the 40s and could reach 50 by the afternoon, another overcast day with showers off and on. This is WBUR 37 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nikki Haley has had two disappointing finishes now, last week in Iowa and last night in New Hampshire. But she says she's staying in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. That's the former South Carolina governor speaking to supporters last night in Concord, New Hampshire. NPR political correspondent Sarah McCammon is covering the Haley campaign and is here to talk about Haley's next steps. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Ari. All right. One day after the New Hampshire primary, where does Haley stand in this race? 
I mean, she's struggling to look like a viable challenge to Donald Trump, who, of course, was the clear winner in both of the first two nominating contests. But she's holding on. The race is now down to just Trump and Haley, and that's a head-to-head that she's wanted. Even so, Trump won last night by double digits in New Hampshire, about 11 points. Haley, supporters insist she is making progress just by being the last person standing besides Trump. I I talked earlier with Priya Samsundar with the pro-Haley Super PAC Stand for America. It's all about gaining momentum and doing better than we did it in previous races. And so we've accomplished that so far, and that's the goal heading into South Carolina. And she points out only a small percentage of votes have been cast. And she says Haley's looking ahead to both South Carolina's Republican primary in a month and Super Tuesday in March. Uh, Just to clarify, Nevada actually votes next, but South Carolina is especially high stakes. What is she facing there? Right. Nevada has this unusual system with both a caucus and a primary next month. Haley's not participating in the caucus, which is what really counts, where the delegates are handed out. So she is focused on her home state of South Carolina, where she's campaigning today. Scott Huffman is a political science professor at Winthrop University in South Carolina, and he says she was a very popular two-term governor and is still popular at home. So especially Republicans in South Carolina think very highly of Nikki Haley, but that doesn't mean they want her to be president. They still want Trump to be president. They might want a Haley presidency if there wasn't uh, a Trump with you know, a stranglehold on the party. Trump has been way ahead in South Carolina polls, and Huffman says losing in her own backyard could be a bad look for Nikki Haley, assuming she has future political aspirations. So that's something she's likely to be thinking about, too. Meanwhile, what's her message to those voters going forward? You know, she's telling voters she can save the country from another Trump-Biden matchup, which most voters don't seem to want. Danielle Venson is a politics professor at Furman University in South Carolina. She says she thinks at least in South Carolina, a better strategy at this stage might be focusing on electability. As much as some of those South Carolina Republican Trump supporters love Trump, they don't want Biden to have four more years. Now, Vincent notes that Haley has been making that argument more and more lately on the campaign trail. She's also already making a bid for support from independent voters, as we saw in New Hampshire and as she continues on to South Carolina. She's had some success with that in New Hampshire, but registered Republicans overwhelmingly backed Trump there. Now, South Carolina has an open primary, which means people of any party can vote in in any primary, and so do several of the Super Tuesday states. Haley's Super PAC says they hope she will be able to appeal across party lines to voters who don't want that Biden-Trump matchup she's been talking about. But Ari, uh, Professor Venson says Haley needs to show that she can win over a majority of Republican voters in South Carolina if she hopes to have momentum going into Super Tuesday in March. And PR Sarah McCammon, thank you. Thank you. 28% of Americans are now religiously unaffiliated. They are called the nuns. That is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, to be clear. And there's a new study out today from Pew Research that looks at how atheists, agnostics, and those whose religion is nothing in particular view God and morality. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose joins us now. Hey there. Hello. So Jason, 28% on its face, that seems like a lot to me, but 
Help us put that number into context. Well, first, Juana, that number has grown dramatically since Pew first began asking about religiously unaffiliated people. Back in 2007, nuns made up just 16% of Americans, now 28%. And by comparison, that means atheists, agnostics, and those whose religion is nothing in particular make up a greater percentage of Americans than Catholics or evangelical Protestants. In fact, nuns are essentially the largest religious group in the U.S. In other words, the country is becoming less religious. Interesting. Jason, I understand that the study asked these people what, if anything, they do believe. What did the study find? Well, it's a bit of an umbrella, right? Putting atheists and agnostics in with this group of people who say nothing in particular. That's an umbrella. So some of the findings are a little surprising. For instance, most nuns believe in God or another higher power, but very few attend any kind of religious service. Also, most of these nuns say religion does some harm, but some think it does some good. They aren't all anti-religious. Most have more positive views of science than people who are affiliated with religions, but most nuns reject the idea that science can explain everything. Here's Gregory Smith. He's a Pew researcher who led this study. He's, here's how he says the growth of nuns could affect American public life. We know politically, for example, that religious nuns are very distinctive. They are among the most strongly and consistently liberal and democratic constituencies in the United States. And that could change electoral politics in the coming decade. You know, we often hear a lot about the political power of white evangelicals, but their numbers are shrinking while the political power of nuns could be on the rise. Okay, so aside from what nuns believe, what did Pew find out about how these people behave? Well, by a number of measures, nuns are far less civically engaged and socially connected than people who identify with a religion. In fact, they're less likely to vote. So they may be Democrats, but they might not actually help Democrats at the polls. But now let's break that down a bit. Atheists and agnostics are, in fact, very likely to vote. But those who say their religion is nothing in particular are far, far less likely to vote. And they're less likely to volunteer, they're less satisfied with their local communities, and they're less satisfied with their social lives. Another interesting finding in the study is how nuns say they make moral decisions, since most people rely on religious teachings for moral discernment. Pew found that they use reason and logic to make these decisions and an interest in avoiding harm to others. Jason, aside from belief, what can you tell us about who these nuns are demographically? Well, there are two standout findings. First, nuns are young. 69% are under the age of 50. Younger people are becoming less and less religious. The second remarkable finding is related to, related to demographics is this. Nuns are very white. 63% of nuns are white. And that goes along with other studies that have been gone on for, for decades that have found that people of color are far more likely to say religion is important or very important in their lives. That is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Jason, thank you. You're welcome. This is NPR News.
Still ahead on WBUR, reporter Anthony Burks discovered multiple New Hampshire primaries, including yesterday's. He takes a look at what's happening to the Granite State's proud brand of retail politics and considers the future clout of the first in the nation event. Listen at 544 on the radio and on the WBUR app. Kind of a dreary day today. Off and on rain should continue through the night tonight. 35 degrees now in Boston. Should reach 43 by dawn tomorrow, then turning a good deal milder during the day, up around 50 with mainly cloudy skies. Few showers possible during the day. Friday, we're looking at the chance of more rain. Should be about 47, so not quite as warm. Clouds should stick around for the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR, 35 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. I'm Robin Young. Some states are jailing parents, usually single moms juggling doctor appointments and transportation, whose kids miss too much school. The parents and the kids often are trying the best they can in the circumstances of their lives. Punishing them for that won't get them to school more. It'll just punish them for something that if they had any choice, they wouldn't be doing. The solutions for truancy next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, more delays on that border and Ukraine funding bill in the Senate today, with a growing number of Republicans pushing back on Democrats, saying they don't, they won't rather, give them what they want on border security. Senator Rick Scott of Florida says he's not willing to agree on any concessions made without tighter border measures. One thing we do know about this bill There will be nothing in there that will directly impact anything, whether it's Ukraine aid or anything else, if the border's not secure. Scott claims the Biden administration is knowingly letting in criminals and drug dealers. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, is more optimistic about passing immigration reform. There is a compromise solution here, and I think we're close to it. The state of Alabama is within hours of the nation's first-ever execution using nitrogen gas, as Pat Duggins of Alabama Public Radio tells us. The Supreme Court there has turned down an appeal from the inmates' attorneys to stay the execution. The Alabama Department of Corrections plans to force convicted killer Kenneth Eugene Smith to breathe nitrogen gas until he suffocates. The state claims the method is painless. Critics say it's experimental. Maurice Shamaz with the nonprofit criminal justice journalism group The Marshall Project says Alabama's plan means no medical professionals will handle the execution. And that's where the risk is really increased. So really, it, it's just worth underscoring how much we don't know about how this is actually going to work. Mississippi and Oklahoma have approved nitrogen hypoxia as a means of execution, but Alabama is the first state planning to use it. For NPR News, I'm Pat Duggins in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street after some strong gains by Netflix and other big tech companies today. The tech-heavy Nasdaq gained 55 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healey is proposing a $58 billion state budget. It would send more money to the MBTA, community colleges, and pre-K programs. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, that's a roughly 3% increase over last year's spending. 
Healy is walking a bit of a tightrope in her new budget. State tax revenues have been falling for months and aren't projected to increase much next year. But the governor says Massachusetts can still make investments in public programs by trimming around the edges and finding new sources of funding. The result is a smart and focused budget, delivering continuity in state services, and making transformative impact on the urgent challenges that we face. The proposal includes money for free meals in public schools, reduced fares for low-income T-riders, and universal pre-K in 26 mid-sized cities. The budget now goes to the House for consideration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. More people voted in the New Hampshire Republican presidential primary than in any presidential primary of either party in New Hampshire. The latest tally from the Associated Press is that nearly 318,000 Republicans and independents voted yesterday. That's about 20,000 more than in the 2020 Democratic primary, which held the previous record. A new study out of UMass Amherst finds that deaths among people with diabetes spiked during the pandemic, even though they did not have COVID at the time. The review looked at 138 studies around the world. Assistant Professor of Health Policy Jamie Hartman-Boyce is the co-lead author. She says many aspects of life, including health care, were disrupted during the pandemic. She says she hopes the study can help people better prepare. When we're planning in the future, if another pandemic comes, what we might want to do to ensure that we're trying to minimize the burden of these disruptions on people living with diabetes. Hartman Boy says the disruption of diabetes care can have immediate and long-term effects. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show. Experience The Huntington like never before in the intimate Masso Studio, 264 Huntington Ave., now through March 3rd. Tickets and more info at HuntingtonTheater.org. Not too chilly out there, 35 degrees now. Tonight should bring some more rain, windy, relatively warm around daybreak, 43 degrees. Could rise all the way to about 50 degrees tomorrow, but it should be overcast and damp with more showers likely off and on. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There was a time, if you were a reporter on the national security beat, that the name Barton Gelman would strike fear into your heart. This is because Gelman was almost certainly, on most days, in the process of scooping you. And yes, I do speak from firsthand experience. Barton Gelman anchored the Washington Post team that broke stories about Edward Snowden and the National Security Agency, stories that went on to win a Pulitzer Prize in 2014. Before that, Gelman won a Pulitzer for a series on Dick Cheney. And before that, he was on the team that won a Pulitzer for coverage of the 9-11 attacks. Well, Gelman has since jumped from the Post to the Atlantic and now... He's making a little news himself because he is stepping away from journalism to join the Brennan Center in what they are calling the fight for American democracy. Barton Gelman, welcome to All Things Considered. 
Thank you for having me. Why make this leap now? I've been writing for the last several years about what seems to be an existential threat to democracy and the rule of law. And this is not a drill. It's the real thing. And I started asking myself uh, if I think this is the biggest deal happening right now. Should I be staying on the sidelines? Should I just be sitting back and writing about it? And I decided that I wanted to jump in, that I wanted to do my part to try to uh, predict and avert and mitigate the harm uh, that could come to our democracy. I can hear the journalist in you struggling to articulate exactly how you want to talk about this. Yeah, well... I'm not accustomed to being part of the news. and I'm not accustomed to being a player on the field, and that'll be an adjustment. Yeah. You said part of your process has been questioning whether you should just be, I think you said, sitting back and writing about it. Why do you think you will have more impact from this new perch than you would as a prominent journalist at a major media organization? Well, that remains to be seen, but I thought I ought to give it a try. I don't understate at all the power of journalism to shape our understanding, uh, to shape events. It's what I've done for decades. But right now in this moment, I feel like I want to be pitching in to protect our constitutional processes and to protect our democracy against the meaningful possibility that it could be ended. I mean, can you articulate what exactly it is you see as the threat to our democracy? Well, I, I, I contributed to uh, the cover package in the current Atlantic uh, that talked about, you know, what if Trump wins? And my piece of that was the Justice Department. The first thing that Trump will do will be to drop all the cases against himself. But he has promised to use the power of government to go after his political enemies. And it's an ever-expanding group. Uh, We have never had that in this country, uh, political prosecutions. And at all the things he says about weaponizing the Justice Department against him is pure projection. It's what he wants to do. But uh, you, you have the possibility of using the IRS to go after political opponents. You have the possibility of pushing through uh, regulatory changes explicitly to help your allies. You have the possibility of invoking the Insurrection Act and using the U.S. military in America's streets against peaceful protesters. Uh, These are all things that Trump has either said outright or implied that he's going to do. So let me push you on the specifics of what someone at the Brennan Center or anywhere else can do? Preparation is a lot of it. People last time around were surprised when Trump started doing things that he said he would do on the campaign trail. There were lots of people who thought a Muslim ban was just something he uh, bloviated about on the trail, uh, but he tried to make it happen. And people being better prepared for that means that you can be ready with litigation strategies and you can be ready with every other element of civil society that can resist a thing like that. Do you have any advice to those of us still toiling in the journalism trenches for how to cover this election and whatever follows? 
one piece of advice is becoming conventional wisdom among uh, thinkers about journalism, but it is not yet fully sunk in to practitioners, which is that the stakes of this race are more important than the horse race, uh, that there should be far more attention to what Trump and Biden's records show and what they say they will do and what you can expect from a Trump or a Biden presidency. There needs to be more attention to that and less to who's up and who's down in which poll on any given day. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you can't normalize Trump uh, and the leading figures in the Republican Party as they stand right now. And I'm not saying that as a partisan point, We, but we right now have one political party that accepts the basic tenets of democracy and our constitutional order. We have one political party that is willing to lose an election if they don't get the most voters. And if you have a party that is uh, tending explicitly toward autocracy, in which the party leader says he could only lose the election if there's cheating, and if you have a party elite that is willing to go along with that, uh, that needs to be a big theme of your coverage. Do you feel hopeful? I mean, I know that's a strange question to ask and a big one, but we're sitting here in January of 2024, staring down an election year that, uh, by your account, and I think many would agree, might be the most consequential of our lifetime. I am hopeful, uh, which some people might be surprised to hear. I had a little bit of a reputation as the feel-bad correspondent for The Atlantic that, you know, there was nothing uplifting about all my doom scenarios uh, because I was writing about things that Trump was trying to do or might try to do that would undermine our basic political system. But I don't believe in the end the American people are going to stand for that. And I don't believe uh, in the end that anyone is going to be able to turn this country into a dictatorship. But I think that everyone is going to have to pitch in in whatever they can do as part of their you know, personal or professional life to protect the fragile institutions that we have. Because uh, what we found out in the last you know five or six years is that those institutions are not self-protecting. They're not self-executing, that they need support. They need everybody uh, to stand behind them. That is longtime journalist, Barton Gelman. As of this week, he is senior advisor at the Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you, Barton. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins. New Hampshire voters yesterday gave former President Donald Trump a big boost toward securing the Republican presidential nomination for a third time, even as his challenger Nikki Haley says she's not giving up, at least not yet. WBUR senior political reporter Anthony Brooks joins us from New Hampshire to take a step back and look at the changing character of the primary in the Granite State and its changing significance in the presidential race. 
Anthony, let's talk first about the results from yesterday. The latest numbers show that Trump beat Haley by 11 points, 54% for Trump and 43% for Nikki Haley. So it wasn't a blowout, as we saw in Iowa, but still a solid win. You paid special attention to the way the state's unaffiliated voters went. How did they end up affecting the race? So historically, this group of voters, these unaffiliated voters, have sometimes delivered big surprises in New Hampshire. Think Gary Hart's win in 1984 or John McCain's upset victory over George W. Bush in 2000. Trump had the Republican base locked down, so Haley needed lots of these independents to pull a Republican ballot and vote for her. She did pretty well with them, but not well enough. And that was enough to give uh, Trump a pretty uh, resounding victory last night. So, Anthony, you mentioned some of the races from the past, which have contributed to the influence and the importance of the New Hampshire primary. You've covered so many presidential primaries. And I'm wondering, based on your coverage, if you think the New Hampshire primary has changed? And if so, how? Well, I think it has. I mean, the Haley and Trump campaigns couldn't have been more different. So, Trump avoided traditional retail politics. Instead, he flies in in his private jet. He holds big rallies and then flies away. And he won. He did it in 2016. He did it in 2020. And he did it this year. By contrast, Haley spent 11 months meeting voters face-to-face in town halls, restaurants, and church basements, the more traditional New Hampshire primary way, and she lost. Uh, So the idea that New Hampshire offers candidates the opportunity to meet one-on-one, shake hands with the voters, and translate that into unexpected political success, has that faded? It seems like it has. And even Haley didn't do it like, say, John McCain did it in 2000. Haley would attend a town hall, deliver a speech, take a few questions, and then leave. But I remember McCain staying on and on, answering every single question until the venue was practically empty. So it feels like that approach, and with it, maybe even the mystique of the New Hampshire primary and its possibility of surprise has eroded over the years. But, you know, it's interesting because Donald Trump is is the, the singular candidate who seems to be able to do that, to jet in and jet out and skip debates. I wonder if it could ever go back. I mean, how much has the dominance of Donald Trump contributed to that? Yeah, I think it's contributed in a big way. I mean, this year in New Hampshire... Trump's presence cast a shadow over the entire Republican race from the start. I mean, every storyline about a possible contender was obscured by the fact that Trump had this enormous lead in the polls. Even when it seemed that that, that Haley might have a chance, all the polls were predicting a Trump victory. And in the end, that's what happened. So that old narrative that New Hampshire can deliver big surprises just didn't happen. And there was a Democratic primary in New Hampshire. We don't hear too much about that. But Joe Biden did not campaign in the state. He wasn't even on the ballot, but there was a write-in campaign for him, and he won. Yeah, that's right. He faced a challenge from Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, and Biden ended up with about 50 percent of the vote. But all this is another reason why it feels like the New Hampshire primary is losing its mystique. The decision by the Democratic National Committee to have South Carolina vote first meant yesterday's Democratic primary wasn't even recognized by the DNC. So how will this be resolved ultimately by the Democratic National Committee? Well, it's not clear. I mean, the DNC wants to begin the primary calendar in a state that's more diverse and reflective of America, like South Carolina. New Hampshire, meanwhile, has a state law that says we will always go first. But if this argument between New Hampshire and the Democratic Party continues, it will mean that the Democratic primary in New Hampshire 
just ends up being an unsanctioned political poll in the years ahead, and that will certainly diminish its stature even more. Thank you for all you've done, Anthony Brooks, including and especially in the past 24 hours. Anthony Brooks reporting from New Hampshire. Thanks again. Thank you, Lisa. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. Light rain into the nighttime. Some steadier showers overnight tonight. Should be a breezy and mild night. Tomorrow, still some off and on showers. Unseasonably warm tomorrow. Could reach about 50 degrees. 35 degrees now in Boston at 549. Winter in Boston is no joke. Sometimes the city is covered by a beautiful blanket of snow. And sometimes the streets and sidewalks are treacherous because of thin layers of ice. We have a few tips from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston to help you survive and thrive in winter. First things first, bundle up when you're outside shoveling or salting. A warm coat with a hat and gloves, insulated boots, thick socks, and lightweight long johns can go a long way. Now for the fun. Slap on ice skates at the Boston Common Frog Pond or other neighborhood rinks, but stay away from any body of water that might not be fully frozen. Or grab a sled and hit the hills. You'll find companions in just about any neighborhood park from the Emerald Necklace to Ronan Park to Bunker Hill. One, two, three. For more on enjoying winter in Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The hot labor summer of 2023 may have yielded big contracts for workers, but a labor resurgence? Not exactly. The share of U.S. workers who belong to unions remains at an all-time low. That's according to new numbers from the Labor Department. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. Union membership was once commonplace in America. In the 1950s, about a third of private sector workers belonged to unions. Today, it's just 6%. And even as union jobs are growing, non-union jobs are growing faster. Companies have been fighting back against labor for decades. The reality, it's really difficult for workers to organize. And so Heidi Shearholt says, There's just a massive gap between the share of workers who are in unions and the share of workers who report that they want to be in a union. Shareholtz is president of the left-leaning Economic Policy Institute. She says a big part of the problem is labor law. It's weak. Even when a company is found to have violated workers' rights by, say, firing employees for leading a union drive, the consequence under labor law? Basically a slap on the wrist. The stalled union campaign at Amazon is one testament to this. Shearholtz believes there need to be some major changes to labor law to really halt and reverse the decline that unions have seen over the decades. And efforts in Congress to do that have so far failed. Now, where unions do seem to be winning is in the arena of public opinion. According to Gallup polling last summer, more than 70% of Americans sided with Hollywood writers and auto workers over their employers in those labor disputes. American support for labor unions is as high today as it was in the 1960s, and young people are especially enthusiastic. 
Last year, unions added 139,000 members, that growth driven entirely by workers under 45. Sheerholt says that's promising. I think that does point to a shift that may be a more lasting shift in interest and popularity of unions. Still, Gallup found there are limits to that interest. Six in 10 people surveyed said they were not interested at all in joining a union. Another reason a labor renaissance may not be coming soon. Andrea Shu, NPR News. And now some news about NPR. We're getting a new CEO. Her name is Catherine Marr. She's worked in tech, international development, and finance. Leading NPR will be her first job at a media organization. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick spoke with her yesterday and is here to talk with us today. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. Tell us more about Catherine Marr. Well, I got to talk to her for the first time uh, yesterday. Uh, she, you know, for seven years, uh, she helped lead the Wikimedia Foundation. Uh, five years, it's the chief executive. And if that sounds sort of familiar, it's the outfit that basically helps to sustain Wikipedia, which we all turn to online. And she talked about this as a kind of outfit that shared real sort of values and mission, in a sense, with NPR, a not-for-profit that does things not simply for commercial interests. She talked about this interesting though, I got to say, every time I meet somebody new who's either applied for a job at NPR or who is already got one at NPR, they say, you know, I grew up listening to NPR in my backseat of my parents' car. Right, Ari? Mm-hmm. I mean, you must have heard back that seat a thousand listeners, times. Yeah. She said that, and then she said something more. She said she listened to it every day on her way to school in the late 90s, early 2000s, and she was very interested in the peace talks convened by then-President Bill Clinton between uh, Israeli and Palestinian leaders. She was transfixed by dispatches by Deb Amos from the Middle East here on NPR. And after high school, she was inspired to go off to Cairo, where she studied. And she visited Syria, another place in the Middle East, before she came back. Here's the meaning that she attached to that when we spoke yesterday. I don't think I would be sitting here with you today if it weren't for my driveway moment, which is that drive to school every day. For her, NPR inspired a lifelong search of curiosity and wonder. People doing the math in their heads will realize that this is a leader who comes from a different generation from NPR's previous leaders. Uh, Catherine Marr is 40 years old. Why did the NPR board pick her? Well, I think they did want, just as you say, a generational shift. I think they wanted somebody who had sort of Uh, what shall we say, indigenous to the digital world. And she has experience in that, not only in uh, Wikimedia, but in other outfits. They saw in her clear leadership. They suggested when I talked to Jennifer Farrow, who's the head of KCRW in Santa Monica, California, but also led this search as chairwoman of the NPR board. They said that she had shown the ability to raise money. uh, And she did that, building a foundation for Wikimedia. Here's how she described it. The thing that I loved in my last role was that 85% of our funding came from small dollar donations, 85% of $140 million by the time I left, which is a huge amount of people giving 2 to $3 in support of that mission. And Jennifer Farrow, who led that search, said less important to her was that there's not a conventional uh, journalism role as part of her background, but nonetheless, she pointed to her ability to lead at a moment of crisis. Uh, last fall, Marr stepped in at Web Summit, which is think of kind of a tech Davos. It's an annual conference at which tech leaders and thought leaders and government officials meet. And it was in crisis because of the resignation of its leader over controversial comments about Israel. And she led it through. They're projecting for the next big uh, conference to happen in February. Of course, journalism is in a moment of crisis. Just recently, there have been layoffs from the L.A. Times to The Washington Post to uh, Sports Illustrated. Why does she see NPR as different? And how does she see this organization navigating through this difficult chapter? 
Well, you know, 10 months ago, you might not have seen NPR as so different. We were in what uh, our current chief executive, John Lansing, termed an economic crisis. We laid off 10 percent, as our colleagues, as both of us recall, with some degree of pain. And yet we are now financially stable, according to our budgets and, and our leaders. And we're not in crisis. We've gone through one. She also talked about the curiosity and loyalty instilled and inspired by NPR and its audiences and its listeners. She saw this as an opportunity to build those audiences, to grow them. And she thought that like Wikimedia, Wikipedia, that this as a nonprofit could serve public service uh, in a way that uh, was more appealing to her than some of our commercial competitors. I think that the alignment of the mission is quite similar. It's to be a public institution or a public service for an audience, regardless of their ability to pay for the service, you know, independent of commercial incentive, there is a strong alignment in both of those organizations around integrity and autonomy. And so she said this was in some ways a surprisingly natural fit. And did she tell you what her priorities will be when she takes the helm? Well, she said that first when she was approached by headhunters to think about this job, she hesitated. She said, am I ready? But she said she thinks she will be, that she needs to spend some time understanding the newsroom. Here's how she described it. I think the thing that I'm acutely aware of and a place that I will spend a lot of time as I come in is really understanding the newsroom and being able to learn from the way that the work happens today. But she recognizes NPR is more than just its reporting. She wants to make sure that, you know, our podcast, music and other offerings uh, find their audiences and find ways of support. And she also noticed there have been a lot of vacancies at the top levels of NPR, and she's going to take her time to make her team. That's NPR's David Fulkenflick on this organization's newly named CEO, Catherine Marr. Thanks, David. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com NPR. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. In Vermont, a group of lawmakers is looking at a new way to make big oil companies pay for the damage caused by climate change. Lawmakers in Massachusetts are eyeing similar bills. We'll tell you about them tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. 35 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump won big in the New Hampshire primary, but Nikki Haley says she is staying in the race. Well, I'm a fighter and I'm scrappy. And now we're the last one standing next to Donald Trump. Meanwhile, Joe Biden gets the coveted endorsement of the United Auto Workers. This is WBUR's All Things Considered.
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, nearly one-fifth of all Israeli soldier deaths in Gaza have been due to accidents or friendly fire. Military experts say that number is high even for urban conflict. And nearly 65,000 pregnancies are estimated to have been caused by rape in states where abortion is banned. We'll have a report on that. And also, John Stewart is returning to The Daily Show as the Monday night host for this year. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Despite losing a second time to former President Donald Trump last night, Nikki Haley says she's staying in the race for the GOP presidential nomination. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. According to exit polls, Nikki Haley won three-quarters of moderates in New Hampshire, along with six in ten college graduates and two-thirds of voters who were not registered Republicans. But former President Donald Trump won three-quarters of those who identified as Republicans, seven in ten conservatives, and those without college degrees backed him by a two-to-one margin. Nikki Haley's campaign released a memo on Tuesday pushing the goalpost to Super Tuesday. But in other Republican primaries, numbers like New Hampshire's would mean big wins for the former president, since conservatives, GOPers, and voters without a degree are a much bigger part of the electorate. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Ohio State Senate is overriding the Republican governor's veto of legislation banning gender-affirming care for minors. The GOP controls both chambers, and the state house already voted to override Mike DeWine's veto, which means the law will take effect in about a month and a half. More than 20 states have enacted similar bans, many of which are facing legal challenges or have been blocked by judges. The U.S. Supreme Court is clearing the way for Alabama to be the first state to use nitrogen gas for an execution. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports Kenneth Eugene Smith is scheduled to be put to death tomorrow night. The justices denied Smith's request for a stay of execution while he pursues appeals in a lawsuit arguing nitrogen hypoxia is an untested execution method that amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. It is an authorized execution protocol in Alabama, Mississippi, and Oklahoma, but has never before been put into practice. The state will use a gas mask to administer pure nitrogen, cutting off his oxygen supply. Smith was sentenced to death in a 1988 murder for hire. The Alabama Department of Corrections tried to execute him by lethal injection in 2022, but executioners could not get IV lines connected. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. The Biden administration wants to ban another bank junk fee. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau today proposed banning fees that banks typically charge when a transaction is declined in real time. It's the second major proposal by the CFPB over the types of fees that people sometimes run into. Earlier, they announced plans to reduce overdraft fees to as little as $3. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow down 99 points, NASDAQ up 55. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has released her budget for the fiscal year that starts July 1st. The $58 billion plan is a more than 3% increase over the current budget. It does not include any plans for tax increases. Doug Howgate of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation says the governor seems to have taken a relatively conservative approach given the uncertainty of the economy. 
That's why it's critical to not see a budget that takes money from the stabilization fund or does some of those things that's really going to limit our choices. So absolutely, the economy seems stronger than our revenue collections. Who knows what the future looks like? So we need to make sure we're protecting against that now. It includes $325 million to help the large number of unhoused migrants coming into the state. Boston City Councilor Ed Flynn is on a five-day trip to Israel with a delegation of American leaders. Here's WBUR Simone Rios. Flynn's office issued a statement saying he's visiting Israel in the wake of the October 7th attack by Hamas. The trip is sponsored by a nonprofit affiliated with the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, a pro Israel lobbying group in Washington, D.C. The statement said Flynn is meeting with members of the Israeli parliament, military leaders, heads of non governmental organizations, as well as academics and journalists. Flynn said in the statement, quote, We must continue to stand with our Jewish American neighbors and call out and denounce anti Semitism when we see it. Tensions over the war in Gaza have spilled over into the city council in recent months. Some councillors calling for a ceasefire and others calling for support of Israel. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The state's largest health insurer is putting the brakes on a controversial policy to restrict the use of anesthesia during colonoscopies. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts drew outrage from doctors who said the new policy would discourage patients from getting exams. WBR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey has more. The dispute involved the level of sedation that patients receive during colonoscopies and other similar procedures. Doctors and patients often prefer anesthesia, also known as deep sedation, which puts patients to sleep. Blue Cross leaders argued that many patients don't need anesthesia and could be examined while sedated but still awake. The insurer said it would only pay for anesthesia if patients met certain criteria. But now, after a backlash from doctors, the insurance company is pausing enforcement of the new policy. Blue Cross leaders say there's too much confusion about the plan and vow to give 90 days notice before making any other changes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCleskey. In the forecast, light rain into the nighttime. Some steadier showers overnight tonight. Should be a windy and mild night, about 43 degrees by tomorrow morning. And tomorrow, some off and on showers, unseasonably warm, could hover around 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 36 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In the United Kingdom, tensions are boiling over and U.S. relations are now steeped in controversy about the proper way to make tea. More on that in a little bit. But today, we start with the race for the Republican presidential nomination. After Donald Trump's win yesterday in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is on shakier ground. Let's turn now to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro to sort through the results. Hi there. Hey there, Juana. So, Domenico, Donald Trump won fairly decisively in New Hampshire by about 11 points over Nikki Haley. But we heard her last night. She's vowing to continue. How realistic are her chances? Well, the clock is really ticking for Haley. But last night, she clearly was not ready to give up the fight. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. 
Well, and Haley has reason to look toward South Carolina. It's her home state. She was governor there. She's holding a rally there tonight, and she's just gone up on the airwaves with millions of dollars in ads. But I have to say she faces some real challenges because South Carolina looks a lot more like Iowa than New Hampshire in a Republican primary. Okay, go on. Say more. Well, I mean, almost half of New Hampshire Republican primary voters were independents last night. Haley won them pretty handily, about 6 in 10. But Trump won Republicans by 50 points, and he won them by 30 points in Iowa. And when it comes to South Carolina and the states after that on Super Tuesday, there just aren't a lot of examples of places that fit the New Hampshire voter profile. You know, South Carolina, for example, 2016, it was 76 percent Republicans. If Haley lost in, uh, you know, if Haley lost in New Hampshire by double digits, how does she win in a place like South Carolina? Now, even if there is some goodwill left from her being governor, we just haven't seen that show up in the polls yet. Uh, Trump leads by a lot there. And only two states looking ahead to Super Tuesday, Vermont and Massachusetts, had an electorate that was less than 60 percent Republican. That's just not going to be enough to beat Trump. I mean, listening to our coverage last night, it sounded like former President Trump was clearly irritated with Nikki Haley's decision to remain in the race. What do you think his approach is going to look like moving forward? Well, I mean, this is another potential major hurdle and problem for Haley. You know, Trump wants the party to unify around him now. He's been calling for that for the better part of the of the past year. You know, many Republicans are are falling in line, even those who might have been lukewarm toward him. I mean, last night, Texas Senator John Cornyn endorsed Trump after his win. You know, because Haley didn't drop out, Trump called her an imposter. He made cracks about what she was wearing, and he promised this. I don't get too angry. I get even. I don't get too angry. I get even. Huh. And we've seen how Trump needles and ridicules opponents. He's already brought up Haley's heritage. And even though she was born in the, in the country and is qualified to run for president, he's arguing that she shouldn't be because her parents weren't born in the United States. You know, you can only imagine what he's going to pull out from the insult bag of tricks now with Haley promising to stay in. And that's a big consideration for Haley. Will she have the money to beat back those kinds of attacks? And what does she want to put up with over the next month if she wants a future in the Republican Party that right now is a party of one? Right. And it's clear that former President Trump wants to move on. And so does the Biden campaign, which said last night that the general election starts now. Is that where we are? Well, we're certainly right on the precipice of that. You know, a write-in effort for Biden in New Hampshire in New Hampshire last night, easily dispatched of Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota. He'd spent $5 million on a race there that, doesn't, that didn't count. Um, and Biden wasn't on the ballot. You know, Trump won easily and with more than 50 percent in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And I have to say, all of this is pretty ironic, considering that both men are unpopular. People continue to say they're both too old to be president. And people are not enthusiastic about a potential Biden-Trump rematch. But voters in their parties in these early primary states are saying that's exactly what they do want. And it's going to be acrimonious. It's going to be ugly like we saw in 2020. But it's pretty much been the most likely outcome all along. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. A warning, this next story deals with sexual assault and abortion. A new paper out today estimates the number of people who have become pregnant from rape in states with abortion bans. It's nearly 65,000. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has more. Dr. Samuel Dickman is an abortion provider in Montana. I have patients routinely who tell me that they're pregnant as a result of rape. Dickman began to wonder about patients who became pregnant due to rape in states where abortion is banned. So he and a group of colleagues set about to gauge the scope of that problem. The challenge? There is no data set on the number of rapes that result in pregnancy. We use the best available research and data that we're aware of to come up with the fraction of women 
of reproductive age who are survivors of, and the terminology here is horrible, but, you know, completed vaginal rape. They put together survey data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with Bureau of Justice Statistics data and FBI crime reports. They calculated there have been more than half a million rapes in states with abortion bans while those bans were in effect, and that those rapes have resulted in 64,565 pregnancies. Dickman said he and his colleagues were shocked at those numbers. I was horrified. Sexual assault is incredibly common, and I knew that in a general sense, but to be confronted with these estimates that are so high in states where there's no meaningful abortion access, I mean, it's hard to comprehend. Dr. Rachel Perry is an OBGYN and professor at the University of California, Irvine, who was not involved in the study. She thinks the methods Dickman and his colleagues used to come up with their estimates were appropriate given the lack of concrete data. Seeing these numbers makes us realize that even if they aren't exact, it is a huge problem. Certainly not all of the people who become pregnant due to rape want an abortion, Perry observes. But we do know that those who become pregnant after rape are more likely to choose abortion than to continue their pregnancies. Which suggests tens of thousands of Americans have wanted an abortion after a rape and had no access where they lived. Polling consistently shows that most Americans think that someone who is raped and becomes pregnant should have legal access to an abortion. Yet the majority of states with abortion bans do not include such an exception. Some rape survivors are starting to speak out about the need for easier access to abortion after assault. Survivors like Samantha Hansen. She was a college student at Brigham Young University in 2014 when she was watching Netflix with someone she considered a friend. She went to go pop popcorn in the other room. When I came back with a popcorn and started sipping my Coke, it wasn't too long before I couldn't move a single muscle. Weeks later, she noticed she'd missed her period and a pregnancy test came back positive. She went to Planned Parenthood to talk through her options. She had decided to continue the pregnancy, but ended up having a miscarriage. Still, she was grateful to have had the option to end her pregnancy. Having had my autonomy stripped from me that night that I was raped, having the ability to make that choice was so, so pivotal to my healing. Hansen says the researcher's estimate of 65,000 pregnancies from rape may surprise some people. I'm not surprised, and if anything, I'm over here going, it's probably higher. She's glad the researchers worked to quantify the number. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Now to the United Kingdom, where a U.S. scientist's book about tea is making quite a splash, or maybe more of a stir, or has it become a tempest in a teacup? From London, NPR's Lauren Freyer reports on what one American wrote about Britain's national drink and how it landed the U.S. Embassy in hot water. Today was publication day for Michelle Franzel, a chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. She thought her new book, called Steeped, The Chemistry of Tea, would be a modest little chemistry tome with crossover appeal. Thinking about caffeine, thinking about the molecules that give it its beautiful aroma. Except there's this one line. Here's the full book, and I'm going to look to see where I put the salt in. For the perfect cup of tea, she advises warming the milk to reduce chances of curdling when it hits the water and adding a pinch of salt to make the tea less bitter. 
Now, to anyone who's ever been in a relationship with a Brit or spent like five minutes in the UK, that sounds like blasphemy. This scientist reckons that the only way to have a decent cup of tea is with a pinch of salt. That's what I said. Lunacy. You'll be right. Hot milk and salt. Who is this person? Those are local talk radio hosts Vic Minette and Tony McDonald. They had on-air call-ins today from people like Jane Pettigrew, director of the UK Tea Academy, recipient of multiple World Tea Awards, and contributing editor of Tea Time magazine. I've just made myself a cup of tea with some salt in it, and I have to say I don't like it much. (laughs) Bizarre. It's It's been 250 years since the last time Americans spoiled a whole lot of British tea with salt water in Boston Harbor. So the U.S. Embassy in London scrambled to issue a statement today, calling tea the elixir of camaraderie, a sacred bond that unites our nations. Here's the embassy public affairs officer, Rodney Ford. We want to assure the good people of the U.K. that the unthinkable notion of adding salt to Britain's national drink is not official United States policy and never will be. Except, as in Francel's book, there's this one little line at the end of the statement. The U.S. Embassy will continue to make tea the proper way, it says, by microwaving it. Heads are exploding across these British Isles tonight. And in case you didn't catch this, the U.S. Embassy staff have a sense of humor. It mostly seems all within kind of good fun. People are taking it... I'm going to make a terrible pun again. A grain of salt. <laughs> As for the author Francel at the center of this whole brew, haha. Well, my son lives in London, so now I'm worried am I going to be able to visit him. She's pretty sure she'll still be allowed into this country. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. The American economy is making history with the most significant influx of government investment in decades. Tonight, starting at 6.30, a special series starts with a look at the New Deal. It provided a before and after moment for the U.S. economy. This is a big shift in the American experience, in the American society and economy. The federal government is a player in a way that it never had been before. Marketplace starts in 10 minutes. A mixed finish on Wall Street. The Dow was down, lost a quarter of a percent. S&P had a small gain, less than a tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose nearly four tenths of a percent. New England restaurants are well represented in this year's list of James Beard semifinalists. Comfort Kitchen of Dorchester is nominated for Best New Restaurant. Haley Henry in downtown Boston and Rebel Rebel in Somerville both got nods for their wine. Restaurant and chefs from Portland, Providence, and Newport also made the list. The finalists will be announced in April. It's 620. WBUR supporters include Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966, with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. At MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, 
mathworks.com slash MOS. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. The East leading Boston Bruins will be back on Garden Ice tonight. They host the Carolina Hurricanes at 7.30. And in the Women's uh, Professional Hockey League, Boston visits Ottawa tonight starting at 7 o'clock. In the forecast, damp weather on the way, off and on rain could continue through the night tonight. It is 35 degrees now, should reach 43 by dawn tomorrow. And then milder during the day, could reach 50 degrees. Lots of gray, lots more showers coming up tomorrow. This is WBUR. It is 621. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This week, Israel saw its highest number of soldier deaths in one day since it began its invasion of Gaza. In all, 210 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the war. Nearly a fifth of those deaths were caused by accidents or friendly fire, according to the Israel Defense Forces. That is one of the highest such percentages in recent military history. NPR's Fat Matanis reports. Israeli soldiers were killed in airstrikes by shrapnel from Israeli explosives. Some were run over by armored vehicles or mistakenly identified and hit by tank fire, shelling and guns. That's according to a report released by the IDF earlier this month. There have been injuries too as Israel fights its most complex war, with two million civilians and tens of thousands of soldiers packed into the tiny coastal enclave of Gaza. As somebody who has fought in a similar environment when I was a brigade commander in Iraq, there's really no limit (laughs) to the procedural steps that you can take to minimize those kind of casualties. And even with that, there are going to be breakdowns and tragic outcomes. That's retired Lieutenant General Sean McFarland, who was also the commander of coalition forces against ISIS. He says one big factor for the high number of friendly fire deaths is that Israel is essentially fighting it out amongst the civilian population, who have not been allowed to leave Gaza. And as Hamas militants jump out of the hundreds of miles of tunnel networks and fire at Israeli soldiers, it's led to a highly kinetic environment that's tested Israel's military structure and the limits of its technological prowess. Urban combat really strips away a lot of the technological advantages that any force holds over any other force. Fighting inside of buildings is uh, very, very difficult. And once again, it kind of comes back to training and less about technology. Israel brought nearly 300,000 reservists back to active duty. Many went from their regular day jobs to urban combat in Gaza with limited training. These incidents, along with the shooting of three hostages by Israeli soldiers and the more than 25,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza, have raised questions about how Israel is conducting its war tactically and strategically. And there's more to it than just the environment of urban warfare or lack of training, according to Raphael Cohen, who's a senior political scientist with the RAND Corporation. It also has to do with the unique structure of the Israeli armed forces. They're all very young. Israel tends to promote quickly. Um, And, you know, Israeli military culture tends to be very sort of short-term and tactical. It means the priority is generally on military force. Israel still has no day-after plan in Gaza, something that has worried U.S. officials that Israel could be headed towards strategic defeat. 
Cohen says beyond that, there's also a lack of shorter-term tactical strategy, such as helping to pass out aid and food to civilians, even toys to children. Cohen says these are things that are usually baked into every U.S. military officer. What can I do to sort of mitigate the harm to the population, both from war grounds, but for strategic grounds as well, because hopefully that, you know, kid that you gave the soccer ball to, you know, they probably will still hate you, but maybe they'll hate you a little bit less is what you're aiming for. And that's that's just that's just not there. Avner Govaryahu is the director of Breaking the Silence, an organization of veterans that oppose the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. He says Israel's leaders need to learn the lessons here. Nearly three months since the invasion of Gaza, only one hostage was returned by the military. The others were all brought back through a deal. I think that it does expose some of the weakness in this idea that we can just use force to solve our problems. More and more Israelis are now beginning to ask that question, too. Fatma Tanis, NPR News. Comedian Jon Stewart helped turn The Daily Show into a program that redefined satire about politics and media. Nearly nine years after he left the job, Stewart is returning as an executive producer and part-time host. The show has spent more than a year trying to find a successor to Trevor Noah, the comic who succeeded Stewart. Noah left The Daily Show in 2022. Here to discuss all of this is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hello. Hi. So, Eric... I mean, what do you make of this news? Why would Stewart choose to rejoin a show that he essentially retired from back in 2015? Well, I think this is a chance to really reinvigorate the show and instantly make it more relevant while they kick the can down the road a little bit in terms of actually choosing a permanent replacement host. So Stewart is, is set to return to hosting The Daily Show on Monday nights beginning February 12th, all the way through the 2024 election cycle. And the show's correspondence will handle Tuesdays through Thursdays. And Stewart, along with his manager, James Dixon, they're going to serve as executive producers for all the show's episodes, possibly through 2025. And this allows Stewart to help chart the future of the show in the same way that he chose Trevor Noah. And as far as why he's doing it now, I think the show's executive producer, Jen Flans, she told me last year that Stewart um, uh, uh, reached out when Noah announced his departure from the show and asked how he could help. Eventually, he agreed to drop in as a guest during former correspondent Roy Wood Jr.'s guest hosting stint. So he seems to still care about the future of the show. And now he's going to be actively involved in helping it succeed. Very interesting. So, Eric, what do you think this all says about the show's efforts to find a new host to follow Trevor Noah? Well, I think it shows how hard it's been for Comedy Central to find a new host. I mean, the show had this succession of guest hosts since January of last year, but they also had some people kind of repeat those roles. Leslie Jones and Sarah Silverman did it twice, indicating that they might have had a, a tough time finding comics to even serve as guest hosts. So there were rumors that former correspondent Hassan Minhaj might be chosen to take over the show, but controversies over his past stand-up specials seemed to quash that idea. And in Jon Stewart's case, you know, this past fall, he left this deal with Apple to do a show called The Problem with Jon Stewart over conflicts about content. So now he's free. He can return to this place where he had his greatest success during a presidential election. We're all going to be laser focused on politics and media. Mm -hmm. And it's a moment when fans of the show, old school fans of the show, might post on social media that they wish he was hosting The Daily Show anyway. 
Right. I mean, we've talked before about how the late night genre is contracting. So I'm curious if this development might offer a glimmer of hope for people who have seen folks like Trevor Noah that we've been talking about and James Corden leave late night shows and wonder what's next. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wonder if this arrangement isn't also a little bit of an admission that, at least for now, the way the show focused on younger viewers when they hired Trevor Noah might have gotten the program in a bit of a jam because younger people are not watching old-fashioned linear television like cable TV channels. Now, during his 16 years hosting The Daily Show, Jon Stewart was widely admired for upgrading it from a more kind of run-of-the-mill comedy program to creating this style of political and news satire that we see all over late night TV now, including from people who used to work at The Daily Show like Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, and John Oliver. So it seems like he's getting back in the driver's seat to try shape the Daily Show's next chapter, whatever that means, and watching him achieve it, I think it's going to be fascinating. And who knows? You know, he might decide he likes it enough to stay in the chair himself. Who knows? Indeed. That is NPR TV critic Eric Daggins. Eric, thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR, and not too chilly out there, 38 degrees in Boston. Tonight should bring more rain, windy and relatively warm by daybreak, about 43 degrees. Could rise all the way to 50 tomorrow, likely overcast and damp with some showers through the day again. Friday, clouds stick around, so do the showers, up around 47 degrees. The Bruins are riding a five-game winning streak into tonight's game with the Carolina Hurricanes, 7.30 start time at the Garden. The Celtics play the Heat tomorrow. 38 degrees in Boston at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com.